Today, we interview Chef Daryl Schuler, one of those certified master chefs. We also talk about trends in the restaurant industry, what else is going on in Atlanta, and things you can do to be a better home cook. All that and more today on the Marketing Mad Men podcast. They say marketing is a madman's game. So now we turn it over to the Marketing Mad Men with Nick Constantino and Trip Joe. Happy Saturday. Welcome to the Marketing Mad Men. Nick Constantino here. Trip will be joining us shortly. Um, he took a little sabbatical, and he'll be right with us. Uh, and today we have with us Chef Daryl Schuler. Um, you'll notice by the voice because it's got that deep Tenny Pendergrass kind of tone to it. Um, but Chef Schuler is one of only 74 certified master chefs in the world. I'm going to let him tell you what the hell that means, but that is pretty impressive when you think about how many people are in the world and how many people claim to be chefs. So, uh, Chef Schuler, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Nick. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm, pl- I'm proud to have you, dude. Hey, so, listen, I had this voice since I was 12, so. Yeah, that early? <laughs> oh, I don't it. even imagine. I mean, you were hit with the girls back then, that too, was then. It. That was it, Th- yes. that, must, that must have been good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, I want to start where you are now, then we'll go back, and then we'll kind of come forward a little bit. Okay. So, talk about uh, your status as that certified master chef, and talk about some of the things that you have going on now, and then we'll go back to talk about how you got there, because I enjoy when you tell me how competitive being a chef is, and how much it's like being an athlete, and training, and how most people are not cut out to get the level of uh, certification that you have. Right. So, in 2014, I took a test that's called the Test of a Lifetime. It is a certified master chef exam. It's 130 hours over eight days of cooking with other master chefs as the judges. Uh, that gave me an opportunity to be one of only 74 in the United States in the world that have that credential. Uh, also, in 2014, I became the first minority African American to earn that title as certified master chef. So, you think about breaking through walls and paving the way. That's what I did in 2014. So, why? How could you be the first minority? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. There's so much culture and, and that goes into cooking that was it just the industry was dominated by white dudes? I mean, what, what was it that you were that first guy? What, what Was it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, what was it? Well, it's an easy explanation. The, the test is kind of, you know, built around European uh, styles of cooking. French more cuisine, yeah, French, you know, so a lot of people don't really understand that. Got they don't really have that connection with it. For me, I trained a lot. So I was on the U.S. Olympic team in 2008. So having an opportunity to work with some of the best chefs in the world gave me the platform to become a certified master chef. So, yes, most people would think, like, wow, only one African-American to do so? Uh, it doesn't mean that there haven't been other people that mastered the art of cooking. Right. I've just been the first to go take the test and pass. Right. And that mm-hmm. is a grueling test. It is one that, I mean, it has put you in a great position. But right. I also imagine once you get your three or four restaurants, do you really need it? And it's, it's more of a self-motivation. Do I have the personal motivation to do it? And that's something you wanted to do. Right. That's something I wanted to do. You know, yeah. when you're setting out, you know, making goals for yourself, you're like a business person. Yeah. You have, you know, short-term, long-term goals. I said I wanted to be on the U.S. Olympic team. I wanted to be a certified master chef. And to achieve those goals, also tells me that I can achieve other goals in the business world. So that was the reason why I did it. No, you don't have to be a certified master chef to operate a, a quality, successful business. Sure. But for me, it opened up a lot of doors and give give me opportunity to have a lot of people listen to me as well. Yeah, and I think discipline is the main word there. To, to right. do those things, to achieve those things, to be an athlete, a prime athlete, to be a chef, to me, it's got to be discipline because it's grueling. It's not always the same thing the same way. You're handling adversity, but you have to set habits, stick to your habits, and have a end plan, which I think is getting harder and harder these days. 
days, if I'm being honest. Yeah, the discipline, the, the the grind. I think a lot of people just see the glitz and glamour. You know, yeah. Instagram show you, you know, someone smiling with their plate of food, but they don't understand that, you know, real chefs spend 70, 80 hours a week and you got a family and you got personal things you need to take care of and life kick you in the butt as well. Yeah. Can you fight through all that and still stay at the top of your game? That's really the true test of a master. Yeah, I think that's why, I don't know if you saw it, but the show The Bear that was on uh, right. Hulu and FX, mm-hmm. I mean, it was a grueling look at what it actually happens. And especially in the higher end you go, like what you have to achieve for these people to give them mm-hmm. that experience for that money that they're paying. Um, so I, I think we had this conversation before, but I actually spent two or three years as a personal chef, um, not in that high kind of environment, but man, we were cooking for the Billboard Music Awards, the Sundance Film Festival, Les Paul's 90th birthday, lots of people, lots of different big pots going, crazy stuff. And I only saw a glimpse of it because I was too young to be too serious about it. So right. it was just me winging it and probably drunk half the time. Um, but. It's it's amazing when you think about how many plates of food come out at a good restaurant at on the whim and how exact it has to be. It's crazy to think about it. And you guys operate one of your restaurants as an open kitchen. So you're just doing it in the public eye, which is crazy. Oh, yeah, because you think about a chef. It's not a chef cooking a plate of food. That's that's a cook that can cook good, make it look good. A chef is operating an institution, uh, a, a brigade of people. He got people up under him that he's res- responsible for, reporting to him, driving the production, making sure stuff go out on time, making sure those thousand plates look the same all the way through, making sure food gets to one point to another. So if you're not into the logistics, if you're not into managing people, People, keeping yourself under control and being that leader, then you got to be really careful using the word chef. Yeah, no, yeah. I hear you. And I think it's probably one of the hardest things is that consistency is so important, but at the same time, you got to give creativity also. Right. People have to have that room to expand because you can't just be the same menu. You got to be pushing the limits because there's so much competition. So I can't imagine that to be easy. Well, to the, to the purpose of this show, marketing, you know, we eat with our eyes, right? So you think about color combination, you look at seasoning on food. That's the first thing people want to eat, bottom line, regardless how good you are as a chef. If the food isn't good, they don't really enjoy it, then you're missing the point here. So it's all about really making sure that the statement and what you're doing and what you're preparing really showcasing the food you're making. Yeah, I love that. And I think in segment two, I want to go into that big time, just right. how to market it. And because people think marketing is like running an ad. That's not marketing. There's a million ways. PR, advertising, what you do with the community. Right. These are all, you know, Jose Andres is one of my favorite chefs ever. And he completely became, every time there's a disaster, he's across the world doing right. that. And you know what? It worked for him. It right. made it more impactful because mm-hmm. his restaurants were there. They, he already had the pedigree, but that's what he chose to do. So that's authentic. That's more marketing to an extent. So I think that it's a it's a great conversation for segment two. So let's go back. Talk about how you got to where you are. Talk about the influences in your life that made you choose to be a chef. And at what point you were like, this is what I want to do. Well, I started off young mother, single mother in Florida, central Florida, Polk County. Uh, she worked in the citrus industry, watching her influence by cooking at home, making great meals off of a budget, uh, not only preparing food for our little small family, but the people in our community and that church. So that having that Southern, that conservative uh, values really play a part into who I became over those years. So I left Atlanta, uh, left really Florida in 1992, came to Atlanta, went to culinary school, worked in the industry, like I say, won a lot of different culinary competitions. I represented the United States over in China. I was invited to China, you know, to go and compete and do things like that. So all that international exposure and, and experience allowed me to become a certified master chef. But in order to be a master, you got to have an apprentice. So yeah. you want to give back. So why cool. obtain all this knowledge and skill without giving it back? Hence, we created the Shula Institute, yeah. a program that let, let the next future of uh, industry leaders become masters of their craft as well. Yeah, and talk about the vision for that. So I've mm-hmm. been there. I've seen it. I know what it is now, but I know that there's a 
a grander vision right. of, of spreading that influence. And I know that there's scholarships and I know that it's, you know, especially right. Like you want to give back, but also to the minority community, to the African-American community, because they are underserved in the space and mm-hmm. there are opportunities to bring people out of poverty and into this. So talk a little bit about the grand vision, because I think that's more important than just the right now. Well, let me be careful with this. I, it's, it's open for anyone that desire to be better in life through hospitality. Yes, uh, we're in the African-American community. We, we're going out the minorities and people who really need that. But for anyone that wants to come and use hospitality as a way to rebrand themselves, to look at themselves as a global citizen, that's what the Schuler Institute is yeah. all about. And you need diversity. That's right. right. No matter what it is, it can't Absolutely. be all white, all black, all no. Asian. It, it has to be diversity because that's where you get that's where you get little tips and tricks and how you do things differently. Right. And that's how I became a master of my craft because I would have never mastered the art of cooking without the influence of the Italian shelves, the right. German shelves, everybody. You know, and I think that's a message that is being lost right now in this day and age that you have to be confined into a certain genre or to who you are. Yes, that's important to take care of your own, but also become a global citizen. Sit across from someone from yeah. a different culture. Learn their background. That's the sim- similarities there. And I think if we go back to doing that, then I think this country, we could kind of come yeah. back together a little bit. So Let's save the rabbit hole conspiracy theory, <laughs> but the uh, the government wants us to be siloed into groups. Uh, no. they, they don't want us being working together. They want no. us to be they want us to be broken into these groups, and I hate it because I think you know when you and I talk and when I'm out meeting people, most times people when they, when they have one or two things in common, that's enough. And I don't think we search for things that we have in common enough in this country right now. Yeah. And food, my goodness, if there was ever something to bring people together, man. I mean, cuisines and cultures. Right. I mean, I physically get angry when people are like, I won't eat that. Or I haven't tried that. And I go, wait a second. So you're telling me that you won't try Ethiopian food, right? right? There are these restaurants that are from global restaurants that make that you will not try this food. And I find it f- fascinating that people won't try it. I'm not saying love it. Right. I'm saying try it. Yeah. Because you know what is they, they they eat with their hands because they believe that the fork the mineral of the fork affects the food right like that 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 sounds genius to me right. so yeah. so anyway so let's talk you know I know you opened in Atlanta um, I know you're expanding talk a little bit about farmed and how that fits into the into the whole picture well farm kitchen and bar is the hub of the Schuler Institute it was it was really created for. Uh, platform for students to work in. Uh, but because we opened just before the pandemic, we had to launch the restaurant first. So we launched the restaurant. It became a hit. It's one of the best restaurants in the state of Georgia. And I'm not saying that because it's my. It sure. really is a solid operation. Uh, we serve dinners on Friday and Saturday nights. We do brunch Saturday and Sunday mornings. It's very farm to table, very fresh, very... Um, you know, great flavor profiles, but it's executed well right. from the front of the house technique to the back. Driven. The technique driven. And we're not into, like, putting my ideas and my ego on the plate. We think about the consumer, when the guest is coming in, what kind of meal do they want to enjoy, what kind of experience they desire. And so we give that in this beautiful open kitchen, beautiful dining room. Yeah, Sorry. and mm-hmm. and I think what you've done a good job of is it feels like you're eating at your house or a relative's right. house or a family's house. Where mm-hmm. again, one is the open kitchen. Two, I'm lucky enough to know you, so you come over and say hello. I think <laughs> a lot of that's lost, man. I don't think that that's happening as much. I think it's become so much of a business operation, and it's funny. In my experience, the restaurants that succeed are not always the flashiest with the best real estate. It's the one that run the hospitality portion the best. That know and they, you know, I swear I was at a, a restaurant and I swear they knew my name and remembered that I always asked for extra bread with charcuterie board and it was the first time ever that they brought it out with it. Like they had that note in there. Those little things go a very long way, especially when you're paying good money for something. Yeah, Nick, I mean, the best restaurants know people and they know true hospitality and hospitality is love. 
And if you don't serve with love, then why are you saying that you're in the hospitality industry? So why do you have a bias or have an opinion about people coming into your restaurant? Like serve them with love. Let them deal with that on their own. But give them that plate of food with the love from your heart and you can connect with them. That's my motto. It works well for me. And, and that's what I'm going to stand, stand on. Well, I can't I can't end it better than that. So I'm going to end the segment right now. You're listening <laughs> to Market Mad Men. We'll be right back. In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps $5 minimum balance required. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season. Now back to the Marketing Mad Men on Extra 106.3 FM. Welcome back to the Marketing Mad Men. Nick Constantino here, and I got my boy, Chef Schuler with me. We had a great conversation. It's all about the love, baby. It's all Gotta about Got to put that love, love in there. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to continue the conversation about farm because I think it's going to be a good segue into talking about restaurants in general. And, you know, marketing plays in everything, but we're going to have a pretty wide, widespread conversation about um, restaurants as a whole and cooking. So, so, Chef, let's go back to farm. So you opened during the pandemic, hard enough to begin with. You opened in, a, in an area of town, one I believe is underserved. I live right behind it by Tucker. It's an underserved part of town, mm-hmm. very old, has not, has not modified and gentrified the way that a lot of the other pockets of town have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Why did you pick it? What challenges did it present? And what opportunities did it present? Well, we chose that spot because I used to run Le Cordon Bleu. I was the director of education for Le Cordon Bleu, which is where the institute is. Uh, it is actually owned by Prep. Prep is a large organization that uh, that supply you know spaces for operations to work in. But anyway, we chose that in the city of Tucker because the community has been absolutely amazing to us. Yeah. The mayor comes in, all the public officials, the Cab County officials, everybody come in and support us. So we love that type of you know connection that we have. But the people coming in, spreading the word, creating newspapers within their community. Dude, isn't it a weird, having, isn't it a weird bring, part of bring, town? Oh, my God. Isn't bring, it a weird part of town? It's church. got a little bit of a hippie vibe. It's oh got a bit of like gosh. that really southern religious vibe. It is, a, it is a weird part. I tell people all the time, I'm like, yeah, they, you got to go check Tucker out. It's Tucker a weird place. Tucker is a unique place, and we would, probably would not be where we are now without the people of Tucker. Yeah, and I great. bet you the people know that also because yeah. there was not much there, man. They, no. Fine dining ended really there. I mean, there was not a lot in, right. in that in that space. So, um, I love it. So, what what did you learn? So, obviously, you've been around restaurants, but it had to be a different experience opening during COVID, having the school touch. What were some of the things you learned? What were some of the pivots that you had to make? But one of the things I learned is definitely making that connection with the community. I think that was the, probably the best move we ever made was really connecting with them. Uh, some of the challenges that we faced was, you know, getting people back out and having faith in the restaurant industry, considering that the restaurant has such a bad stigma. Because you think about, you know, the, 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 the epicenter of COVID spreading was in bars and restaurants. So a lot of people just wanted to stay away. So we kept our restaurant kind of wide open. You know, everything was spaced out. So people, when they walked in, see this beautiful space, they felt comfortable. And then also creating a menu to where it was fresh, it was seasonal. They could see the chefs in the kitchen. They could see us preparing the food. And that type of combination gave the consumer a lot of 
confidence in coming back and then doing it consistently over and over again with our team members, really making sure that we nail those points each and every time. That's where I think gave us the momentum to continue on to what we're doing now. Yeah, what I love about the Oven Kitchen is like the little things, like making the meringue, where you right. got to beat those egg whites. And mm-hmm. people don't; those are things people don't understand. One, because you're not going to watch a 20 minute video and not learn how to do that. That's right. years of experience of how to do it and how to get that consistency. Mm-hmm. I remember my wife is she's the baker and she challenged me. She's like, "What are you going to make?" So I was like, "I'm going to make a souffle." She goes, "Do you know how I go? I don't have the slightest clue to make right. a souffle." So I bought all this exotic chocolate and I just beat the egg whites with some cream of tartar to mm-hmm. get it to it, and I was shocked how good it came out. Right. But not following the recipe exactly. Like the recipe called for, I was like, well, you know what? I'm gonna put half super dark in and half with a little caramel in. Right. Mix those two together, come at the last minute, so it has that little subtle sweetness. And I was amazed how it came out, but it was not easy. No. I, it was not easy to make a good dessert. <laughs> yeah, it's all about fundamentals and really getting in there and, and just really understanding food and listening to the food. The food talks to you as you're preparing, you know? Uh, even though you have a recipe, recipe is a guide, right? right? But it don't tell you really how to get there. It don't really tell you the sounds, the smells, the sights, and everything else. So I think to your point, you got to really get in there and just feel it, kind of like how our moms did, right? Our bit mamas used to do, just get in the kitchen and cook, and they just created great meals. Yeah, mm-hmm. so my mother was born in Florence, so right. I had a, I came from a cooking family. My grandfather, everybody, and was experimentation after experimentation. There were no recipes in the house. It, it always had a consistent quality to it, but every meal was different. I mean, right. every time we made something, it was different from, you know, whether the chicken parm is going to be thin or thick. I mean, you just crazy things. Right. And I still think to this day, it's it's an easy way to keep it feeling fresh to not have recipes because, mm-hmm. you know, you, it's expensive to eat out. Inflation really crept up on that industry really bad. I mean, yeah. $16 drinks, like it's expensive. So if you could take some of those techniques and bring them home. Um, so let's, t- let's talk about the restaurant industry as a whole. So we've seen this trend of, I, I personally believe we have to go back to a more home-style approach. I think we've gotten a little too froofy, a little too – technical is not the word because I think technicality can come into home-style, but it just feels like a separate entity, and it's only picking out certain people that are allowed to dine there, and I don't like that. I think we're going to go home-style. I remember I was in Quito, Ecuador, and it was this very fancy place, but it really was all over fire, and you felt like you were in someone's house. I see that trend coming here. Where, where do you think we're going with restaurants, um, and where do you see some of your concepts potentially going uh, as it goes? No, I agree to that point. Uh, restaurants should always cater to the consumer and the guests, right? And, and if you can do that, you're always going to be successful. But here, especially in the metro area and a lot of other cities, the, the, the rise of the great chef, right, the rise of the celebrity. We want to be famous. We want to be known. So we put our egos on the plate. And a lot of times that don't really connect. For me, I love understanding my clientele, the people that comes into my restaurant. What do they respond to? What do they like? And so I make sure that my fundamentals meet meet that, right? Keeping things fresh, keeping things executed well, giving them great value for for what they're paying for. But I I think here in Atlanta, I see the restaurant industry really just blowing up and just having all these different types of restaurants. And I think we're going to get to a place where it's going to be the same everywhere. Yeah. You know, until we start to get the chefs to think about advancing their skill set to be a lot more diverse. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I go to a lot of restaurants. I get the chicken and waffles on every menu. I get the shrimp and grits. And that's fine. Those are staples. That's fine and dandy. But this is such a, you know, international community here that you got to kind of infuse a little bit of that into how you cook. Yeah, but you can't mm-hmm. go overboard because I've been to some where I'm like, that does not belong on this menu. I mean, they, they, they try it. I get I like they, they try it, but there's still got to be something, I think, that brings the whole menu together. And I think it's cool what you said because one of the things you see is the rise of the chef-driven menu. Right. And you're right. Well, why? Who cares? How right. about the customer-driven menu? Right. How about that? And I, I do love – so I was – I came of age during the Chopped era and the Celebrity Chef era, and I also saw the revolt against that. Right. So, like, I mean, Emerald opens a new restaurant, and he gets 
gets lambasted. Right. I mean, it doesn't even Guy Fieri. Every restaurant he's went has shut down right. because you could tell that these are just branding plays to make some money that that he didn't feel love. And I've right. eaten at Commander's Palace. Yeah, that is one of those institutions that you go there and you're like, this is something different. Yeah, right. That's where he started. That feels different. You go to Emeralds on the coast in Destin in a in a shopping center. It loses some of that mm-hmm. feel. So I agree with that. What about tech? Augmented reality, AI, God, I don't know how it's going to creep its way in, but you know it's coming. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think that's going to look like? It, it's coming. It's, it's, it's inevitable, you know, especially in the kitchen from, from the production side. Uh, we already have some issues with just labor, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of companies out there creating great uh, cooking, you know, um, you know, pieces of equipment that yeah. will help deep you. Deep fryers. That deep you fryers, yep. you know, all kinds of th- different things that help you be productive in the kitchen. Uh, but then you go about the experience piece, right? So when diners come in, they want to have that type of virtual experience, right? How do you create something that, that puts someone in Italy that never been to Italy while right. they're having that meal, right? Or maybe in the Sahara, you know, or in Africa, whatever, you know, that type of virtual experience is coming. You see that a lot maybe in like Dubai and those countries who are really advanced. Um, so I see that slowly making its way into um, how we dine here in, in the States. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. funny. You mentioned senses. One of the things I always find is that people think of food as a taste as opposed to a smell. Right. And I think that one of the things they do in Europe, I always remember I come back from Europe all the time and I'm like, I eat something, I'm like, how is there so much salt in this? Right. Because they don't cook that way over there, right? It is it is herbaceous and you have all these different vinegars and things we just don't really use in cuisine the mm-hmm. same way here. Um, so I think that when you talk about augmented reality, I think there's ways to use old techniques to help that that sensory experience. Um, and I hope people don't go too far into the that technical world and realize like, you know, some fresh parsley on top of a dish is a game changer if it's the right parsley with the right sense to it, sensory to it. Right. True advancement comes from understanding the fundamentals. When you master the fundamentals, you're able to progress forward. If you leave the fundamentals off, your progression forward is just going to be an experiment and it's never going to connect, never going to be where you want it to be. Yeah, yeah, so I love it. So talk about a little bit. So we know, what is it, one of every two restaurants fails, 50% of them fail. Um, we know that you can go to your favorite restaurant. You thought it was always busy. Somehow it turns over. You talk about big name restaurants. I remember Hugh Atchison had a huge name here. He had three restaurants shut down real fast on yeah. top of each other. So talk about what makes the industry so hard. Talk about what makes it so competitive. And do you think it is going to stay at that competitive level for the next couple of years? Well, one, real estate. You know, you're paying that rent, you're paying that, that lease. You know, that's a tough one, especially when you're trying to be competitive as far as what you sell, the price point, and so forth. Um, labor, of course, impacts that, the consistency, having that standard um, that draws the consumer back. Um, but I think, to to your point, a lot of restaurants fail because a lot of people look at restaurant as a quick, get-rich-fix type of thing. Yeah. They don't really understand the industry. How, how do they think that? So many know. fail. How, how could they think you know, that? Like people think that, oh, I can play ball because I play LA Fitness. I can go to the pros, yeah, but you really true. go and do it. You're like, hey, I'm, I'm so lost. So that's true. Um, a lot of people just think it's a cheek, it's a really you know fancy thing to have a restaurant. I got my own restaurant. Well, they don't understand the hours that goes into it. All the overhead that goes into it, the margins are pretty tight. Um, you know, the, the, and a lot of variable expenses too. These are not of, fixed expenses. No, this is variable. If one thing yeah. changes, you, and then to change the whole menu is expensive. That's right. And then to reprint menus is expensive. Right. And then they think they make their money back on a booze, but even those tendencies have changed. Right. So now you need all this mixology and all this stuff. That's so right. I think I think that has a lot to do with it. Also, I also think that unfortunately, 
we we make we follow trends to and we just make the same restaurants right and like how many southern american restaurants popped in atlanta at the same time how many ramen shops popped up at the same time right right and that goes to my point you know a lot of people don't really know the food industry they don't really know how to make food they don't know how to like fundamentally bring stuff stuff together so they'll see something and they'll say hey i want to mimic that so i'll put my own little version of that but it's the same thing just done all over again the one thing that i pride myself on is that i took the time to develop my skills and i spent almost 20 years refining my abilities to adapt my approach to how I run and roll out my restaurants. So a lot of people can't say that. A lot of people just got directly into the industry and they just into it and they just finding it out as they go. For me, I worked at different restaurants. I worked at country clubs, a lot of different yeah. concepts. I was able to learn how to roll out uh, from catering to customize, you know, personal chef work. Yeah. All that experience really give me an advantage right now in this day and age. And I, I you know, I, I'm going to say this the, the crass way of saying it, but I'm sure you dealt with a lot of douchebags along the way also. Oh, and people, and people yeah. that all high and mighty and thought that they were supposed to get an experience that were just douches about it. And yeah. I'm sure that, that learning that also had to help a little bit, right? Yeah, the first indicator that this person don't know what they're doing is their arrogance. Yeah. If they're arrogant and they just, like you say, like a douche and being, you know, degrading to people, they, they're hiding something. The great ones are humble. The yeah. great ones are giving. The great ones are teachers. The great ones are coach. Um, they know their skill. They know their ability. They don't mind sharing what they know because they're going to come up with something tomorrow anyway, I right? Agree. What was new for them today is no, old yep, to them I, tomorrow. I agree. So that's always an indicator whenever you walk into a kitchen. If you got an arrogant chef in there, that's a that's a huge red flag. Yeah, and then mm-hmm. the consumers. You know, one of the things it, it, when I lived in Vegas, and that is. I don't care what anyone says, because of so many people, that is a crazy culinary city. Right. There's so much going on there. Right. And, and they, they bring restaurants from New York and all over the world and give them their own little spin. But the, the old rumor that went around was Steve Wynn, whenever he met with somebody, he would always go to a restaurant, an executive or something, okay? Mm-hmm. Sit him down and... There had been so many people that they would salt their food before they tried it, right. and he would he would end the interview on the spot and go, "Get back! You're never working for me." Right. That's simply, and I think that's another problem we have. Right? Is first of all, you just paid all this money for this. You're gonna see reseason it without even trying it. That's crazy talk. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't make sense. These imposters that call themselves foodies, you know, and I see that a lot of time in my restaurant. People come in and they want to customize your experience, your interpretation of what you are good at to fit what it is that they want, right? So, of course, putting salt on something before you even taste it and then send it back saying it's salty, right? I season as we cook yeah. our food. We taste as we go, right? Um, I, I think you got to, if you're going to go to eat, then go and eat. But if you're going to go for the experience, enjoy the experience. Yeah, enjoy what that chef is trying to say on that plate and, and through the food and, and take it for what it is. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it's a two-way street also. I remember one time, I'm not going to name the restaurant, but I went to a very famous oyster bar, right. okay? And they brought these oysters out. It was happy hour. So mm-hmm. it's not like it was the 6 p.m. on a Saturday. And I asked for Tabasco on my oysters because I like right. Tabasco on my oysters. The look I got the dirty look I got. And I that is not an absurd request, man. No. Tabasco serve I've never seen a plate of oysters without with a mignette and a but the look I got. So it goes both ways also. First yeah, of all, it does. you you didn't make you didn't even shuck the oysters. You're just the guy at the bar with the handlebar mustache that's handing them to right. me. Maybe right. don't judge my Tabasco ask. It's not like I'm asking right. for ketchup on oysters. Right. You want to cater. You know, if somebody wanna add salt and pepper, they do it fine and dandy. Um, but also I think that if someone make a beautiful, nice you know, meat and rare tuna, right? Beautiful yeah. dish. Well done. Then you say, cook it up well. What the hell? 
you know, yeah. that type of thing. Yeah, but, th- but that's also a, a misunderstanding of what goes into picking tuna that can be cooked to a certain thing. You need right. good tuna. Right. You can't hide it right. by chopping it up and putting it in a can. That's right. To select that piece of tuna, right. the effort that goes into it. I mean, it's similar with steaks, right? Mm-hmm. There's a difference between taking a steak and braising it all day long and making right. it pulled than one that needs to sear on the grill. That's right. That's part of what you said, those those skills and the technicality. And yes, you can find that stuff all on the internet. Mm-hmm. But still, on the internet, everyone's got an agenda. Mm-hmm. No one's telling you how to cook so you can right. have the best meal of your life. Telling you how to cook to make money somehow by Right. get you hooked on something right right so right. that's no, part I of agree. that technicality i mm-hmm. think all right so i'm going to tell you my idea for a restaurant don't steal it, but tell me what you think and then i want to hear <laughs> some of your ideas for restaurants and then i think we'll end with just some of our favorite cuisine so right. here's my idea for a restaurant this is because this is how i grew up i want to do a 11 a.m to 4 p.m sandwich shop um kind of a new york style sandwich shop chicken parm some roast beef sandwiches stuff like that some of the little exotic things i think that you can kind of do like a turkish kind of sandwich with some of those shawarma seasonings mm-hmm. on it Build a sandwich, obviously, on sesame bread, which you can't even find here. Mm-hmm. Build that. Do reasonable but expensive. 12 bucks a sandwich, maybe some homemade potatoes with it. Mm-hmm. But then on on Sunday night and only Sunday night, it becomes a supper club. It's a it's a private private reservation only thing, but you join a supper club and you come mm-hmm. on Sunday night. I'd fly my mom out from New York to make Italian-style, home-style cooking, like the big gravy with the sausage and all that stuff in it. And I think that would really work because I think you can't get more authentic than that. No, I, I think that'll work because you keep it, like you say, authentic to New York style. Yep. And there's an audience for that, a major audience for that. And and when you bring ideas from those big food cities like New York, Chicago, out west, like L.A., uh, then, then you bring in something that's already tried and true and it's going to work. For me, I love restaurants to where you incorporate a little infusion of um, different cuisines into Southern cuisine. Okay. And the reason why I say that, because uh, I just think that when you think about Southern food, you think about the mac and cheese, the greens, the collard bread, you know, the collard greens and all yep. that stuff. Um, it becomes a little, little boring at times. You yep. need to infuse different things. So for me, it, it, I think it lacks pizzazz, it lacks punch. Like I, vinegar for me is one of those ones that's a lot of times missing. It doesn't have calories to it. It gives it a little, a little zip, if you will. I, the only reason why I say boring to me because I grew up on it. Yeah. And I'm always looking at how do we advance this? How do we take yeah. it to another level? How do we incorporate it? You know, I, I, I'll say things that kind of like, not, not really controversial, but I would say, well, if we came to this country as free ambassadors, what would we be eating? Would yeah. we be eating the same, you know, yeah. Things that we see today, no, no I no, think the we'll government bring, had, the government had so much to do with that with soybean and corn and what's subsidized. The government right, has to do with that, so, right? No. Right. So we'd have brought our brought all of our traditions over. Would have been doing some of the things that we learned and 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 cherished in West Africa. Yeah. And the diet that we have and the 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 problems that we have with health and, yeah. and cholesterol and stuff like that would be eradicated because we eat a lot more vegetables and a lot more diverse um, items, you know, on our menu. So that would be kind of like my approach to my new menu my, for my new restaurant. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. think one of my favorite parts of Southern cuisine that I never really uh, – is smoke, is adding right. smoke to things. Right. Like that – there's a difference between using bacon as a base to make a sauce and using the grease from that. Right. And then, you know, you can smoke things. It doesn't have to taste smoky, but that little subtle hint of smoke I think goes a long way. Right. And, and just pork. I mean, right. it, is a, it is a pork town. And, right. you know, one of the things I find fascinating, I grew up eating – everything. I grew up in a Greek and Italian household. Right. I mean, I sucked the eyeballs of the lamb for good luck. <laughs> like they put lamb brains in front of me and right. like they think it was a joke and I'm right. like, this is actually pretty damn good. Right, right. So I think that, that it's like cool to use all the parts of the animal now is crazy because that's what peasant food used to be. Mm-hmm. There would be the demand for the tenderloin, but then, you know, and in China they eat our chicken feed and talk a little bit about that. Do you believe 
We're going to go back to that more whole animal approach. Do you think because of conservation? Do you think, I mean, I've already seen it subtly, but I also see people that are disgusted when they see intestines in soup. So what do you think? Uh, listen, uh, when you, food, first off, was, you know, you had to survive. Yep. So every piece of meat, protein was a value. So nothing went to waste. So we grew up on eating chitlins. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I was like, Mom, you making some chitlins? We get in there and clean them. It wasn't until I got older that I realized what I was eating. But that's what we had, you know. And I think, you know, survival food, first and foremost, you know, eat it all, you know, waste not want not but then you know people have their preference you know uh is is it is it worse to have these you know modified type of plant-based chicken style dishes and stuff you know these products that they're creating uh you you look at those labels they just as worse as you just eat the actual they're they're, they're they're are worse for you than right. a lean piece of meat the fake meat is worse for you right. there's more salt there's more artificial it's exactly. worse for you yeah exactly so yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's crazy i mean i just i think about it like i grew up in a it wasn't a very formal family, right? Mm -hmm. Like my mom, even if she has a restaurant, if there was a, a bone in that steak, she was sucking that thing dry in the restaurant. Right. Didn't care. And that's how I've grown up because why are you ordering a bone in filet to not eat the meat off the bone? That's, that's right. the point to where everything comes from. I see people eating wings and they leave the, 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 the meat on the wings. Like you're supposed to eat the bone, eat like it down animal, to the baby. bone. That's like how a, we are. That's like, how like we eat. Firewood, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think as far as trend wise, um, we're going towards a more diverse, but I would say ethnic standpoint. I, I know Israeli food is really big right now. Some of the mm -hmm. best restaurants in the country are Israeli. I enjoy that kind of cuisine because I never I never knew what Israeli food was. Right. And when you get to the Mediterranean, from Morocco to Turkey to Israel to Greece, similar, but they all have their little spin on it, mm -hmm. and I love that. And I right. don't want to be a place that serves Moroccan, Turkish, and Lebanese. I right. want to be at a Turkish restaurant with a Turkish right. family. You see that coming over. You see some of these places like Del Bar, which has opened in places that were old, big-name restaurants that are closing. You see right. Korean hot pot, which I freaking love, right. Asian hot pot. I right. love it because I'm cooking my own stuff in their spices. Right. Um, you see those coming. So do you see that trend continue, that those ethnic um, foods are going to really come and, and oh, yeah. bring that? That's good. I think so. Uh, because America is just a melting pot, you know, regardless, it's just it's just who we are, you know, and I see a lot more of those styles of cooking come into play now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what what are your favorite? What are some of your favorites? Not not restaurants necessarily, but cuisine. I love Asian cuisine. Yeah. I love Asian cuisine, man. You name it, you know. Uh, you're just talking about ramen, you know, I love Viet Vietnamese, yeah. you know. Um, anything, sushi, my yeah. favorite restaurants are sushi. Go yeah. to the sushi bar. My family would sit and we'll, we'll enjoy that. Um, only because I had opportunity also to go and experience, you know, yeah. Asia. It and, must have been and, uh, game changer. I uh, mean, it was I, incredible. I, yeah. You know, and I do think that you have to find authentic there too, because some of American food, like Thai food, for example, right. so much sugar. Right. They do not cook like that over right. there. No. You don't have that sugar. You don't need sugar in food if it's right. like, now I understand you balance out acid with mm -hmm. a little sugar, a little mm -hmm. fat to balance things out, but you do not need to have food be sweet no. for it to be tasty. No. And I think that's a mistake we make here. That's why I like Vietnamese food a little better because here it's not as sweet as Thai food is. Well, the, the creating dishes with ingredients that are in season. If you work with ingredients that are in season, you're going to get the peak sweetness, right? You don't have Out to add it. additional sugars. So that's really a, a trait that is missing in cooking is that we just think that we can do, you know, asparagus year round or right. broccolini year round or Brussels right. year round. You know, yeah, you can, but it's not going to be at its peak. And so I think uh, seasonality and freshness is important. And are you savoring it? Can you tell the difference? Because if you really are savoring your food, you should be able to tell the difference between in-season food and out-of-season food. Oh, absolutely. You really should be able to. Well, one, the texture is going to be different. Two, the brightness of the color, especially if they're cooking it right, the right. brightness of the chlorophyll, the green. Hey, I know how to blanch, baby. Right, blanch, I'm a blanch. You, you know, got to drop that in rice exactly. right away. Yep. Yeah, you know, all that plays into it. And then, of, of course, look at the size, right? So you've got Brussels that's little small, like little like yeah. marbles. Yeah. They're not in season. Yeah. You know, they're supposed to be big, plump, got some leaves pulling off. So those are the things you just got to look at, you know?
Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I, I love it. And I think in the next segment, I think we're gonna give some kind of advice for home chefs. Yep. Um, because I think like, you wanna, you wanna talk about how to bring people together, mm-hmm. host dinner parties at your house, invite right. them in, see it. Uh, but I also think one of the things that really helps is tra- that travel you mentioned. I remember when I got to South Korea and it was zero degrees, I'm like, well, this is why they make kimchi in the mountains right. because it's freezing cold That's and they need right. to preserve food a certain way. Exactly. So I think that really, if you really want to appreciate the food, I'm not saying you can just hop on a plane and fly. I'm not going to be that guy. But if you have the opportunity, I mean, how they cook in in uh, Mexican food, even in Texas and San Diego, is different how they cook in Mexico and how they cook it in Oaxaca is different how then they cook it in Tijuana. So that's, right. th- th- that's the other thing I think we fail as a country. We think Mexican food is Mexican food, right. but is U.S. is American food American food? Right. Is what they eat in Portland the same as what they eat in Atlanta? No. Right. So no. why would you think it'd be that way somewhere exactly. else? Um, so hey, man, this has been a great conversation. I think we found trip, which is good news. Um, so when we get back, I really want to talk about some advice for home chefs. I want to talk about how you can actually go to supermarkets and pick out the kind of food. I don't want to say prep because everyone might not want to be prepping people, but right. let's talk about do that because I think I think we could have a fun conversation and I think that it would really benefit people um, to, to hear how a chef can make life easier because some of that is time, right? Uh-huh. It's time. So if you listen to the Marketing Mad Men again here with Chef Schuler, and we'll be right back. In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at LGECCU.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps it $5 minimum balance required. The fan is ready for brave season. Are you? 3-1 smoked high in the air, deep center field, and heading for the horizon. A home run by Olsen. We're streaming every game of the Braves 2024 season free on the 680 The Fan app. So make sure you download it now and don't miss a pitch of the Braves this season. Now back to the Marketing Mad Men on Extra 106.3 FM. All right, welcome back to the Marketing Mad Men. And luckily, we have found Trip Job. Hey, hey Trip, where's, you where's doing, Waldo, right? How you doing, buddy? This, <laughs> this is amazing. Great. I didn't think we were going to have him. This is amazing. So, uh, so you've been listening uh, to a great episode about being a chef, being a certified master chef, marketing, restaurants. So I think with this last segment, I want to talk a little bit about being a home chef and being a home cook. And there is a difference. And I think one of the things I really believe is two things bring people together, sports and food. And it doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, everybody just loves good food. And Mm -hmm. I think there'd be advantage for poor people and less less fortunate people to eat very high-end food, and Mm -hmm. but also advantage for really high-end people to eat less low-end food. Because Something about peasant food. My mom used to make pasta patate, which is right. just pasta and potatoes. And right. if you make it right, the starch comes together, and mm-hmm. it is. And it's what two bucks to make an entire pot of it. it. And I think you know, one of the biggest problems in this country is we've been led to believe that McDonald's is the cheapest type of cuisine. And I think that's a damn shame. Ooh, yeah. I think light lentils and rice. If you know how to make, it's amazing what you can do with those two dishes, and you can cook for fifty cents. Yeah, you know, McDonald's may be cheap, but you're paying for it in other ways, you know, through health reasons and stuff like that. But to your point, I think my advice to a home cook is to keep it absolutely simple. Find those dishes where it's only like two or three ingredients. Make it nice. Make it hot. Put it on the table. Have great conversation because they think the food is the master key. It's not. It's the environment, the experience. 
that whole entire, you oh, know, I, other well, than food. Make that makes sorry. it I mean, that's what I, I did walk in right at the very end of the last segment. And um, I think the the thing about marketing and I think about cooking and all that is there's a story to it. That's right. right. Whether it's, okay, a local cuisine you're trying to do or something your grandmother yep, made I, or keeping it simple. You know, you you create that story before you played it to whoever you've got there, friends, family, you know, significant other, whatever. And I think you already get the taste buds going. It's mm-hmm. probably not the quality of your actual cooking, no, uh, unlike we would never touch you. But but I think that story creates that feeling mm-hmm. and uh, how it's going it to taste. It creates intimacy. Yeah. And I think in anything, being intimate is a really important thing for how you experience something. I really do. And I think when I was a, when I was a personal chef, the, my only opening line, because I was not, it was not about talking. It was about, I'd be like, hey, blah, 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 blah. We're here. Here's our thing. And there's lots of wine. I go, get drunk because the food always tastes better. And I, always say it, and I say it because that is part of the, the experience is, mm-hmm. and, and here, there's a big misconception in this country that expensive wine is good wine. Mm-hmm. That is oh. absolutely not true. I, I have a wine club that sends me wine from literally the country of Georgia mm-hmm. that is better than anything on the shelves and it costs $4 a bottle. Right. I, have so, done, I have done more blind. I've done it with wine. I did it with bourbon back to spring. I've done more blind um, alcohol parties with food and all that. And... 80% of the time, one of the lowest, two lowest expensive blind tests ends mm-hmm. up being the favorite but, of people there. You know, that's no different because right. Evan Williams is making bourbon since 1886, Yeah, right? Just because it's cheap does not mean it's bad. Right. And that is something I think, again, I think food is the same way. It does not mean that yeah. I think those bad, those, you know, one of the things I recommend, one, go to a farmer's market if you can, right. because the price points are better and they have those little things. Like for me, hanger steak. And I know it's a butcher's cut. I know mm-hmm. it's getting popularity, but you do not need to buy filet mignon or bone no. in ribeye to have a good steak. This, the, the technique changes a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Hit it with a little bit of acid. Don't overnight it. Don't you dare. But hit with a little bit of acid before. Mm-hmm. Keep that acid on and grill it. And mm-hmm. man, oh man, what a hanger steak tastes, tastes like. Yeah, or just keep it simple, you know, just simple salt and pepper, you know, rub it down, maybe finish it with some fresh herbs, nice little butter, you know, on a steak yeah. like that is the best way of doing it. You know, most people just got in their mind a flavor profile, so they're looking for the A1 bottle. And let yeah. me put some A1 on my steak, you know. So when it comes down to cooking, I think you find something that you can connect with, something that you understand, things that bring back memories, and find the right occasion to really do it, right? So for me, I always thought about when my wife, you know, have an anniversary or a certain date, I would go in and I'll make a simple little dish, you know, like I say, decorate the table, create that experience. And for me, I think that's the best way of just like cooking at home, just finding something that you really enjoy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is think- there anything to stay away from for the home chef? Stay away from the complicated dishes, okay. you know. Um, I, I don't tell anyone to not, not do something, but right. um, if you do the complicated stuff, it's going to be frustrating, and you're going to have that mindset of, like, this is too hard, I'm not going to do it anymore. Yeah. The idea is to encourage people to go back home and cook again. So mm-hmm. start off small, start off easy. Like playing a sport. You don't have the kids start yeah. to, yep. like, slam dunk the ball. Yeah. <laughs> like, get the fundamentals <laughs> build, in place, Build right? good habits, then you learn how to do it a little bit exactly. quicker, you speed up. Exactly. You know, I think one of the things as far as cooking at home is, is that there's a way to prep things. So one of the things I always do. I get celery, carrots. Sometimes I'll put some shallots in there. It varies a little bit. Boil it, and then I put it in the blender, and I make it into a paste, and I freeze it in little. Sometimes in ice cubes. So you just drop one of those in something, and all of a sudden you get all the mirepoix flavors that just pop out. Like a little sofrito. But you know how it, yeah. it is. My mm-hmm. wife's Puerto Rican. It mm-hmm. is a. It is exactly a sofrito. But how powerful of a tool is that little bit of all those? And you're not boiling it and draining it out. It's not a broth. All the ingredients and nutrients are still in there. Mm-hmm. You just drop it in and all of a sudden the little flavor punch you can get from something like that yeah. is crazy. And what did it take you? Four, three minutes to do? My, again, I'm, I'm pale so far in comparison, but my trick and the thing I like is um, steaming, especially with vegetables. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the, for someone who's not accomplished, that's for me like the easy way to make something usually come out 
you know, steaming pretty well. is great because of the high temperature and it helps to break down the the, the cellulose. So yeah. it breaks down the you know the fibers of the um, asparagus or whatever you're cooking. Yeah. That's a great way. For me, I love roasting. Uh, fire. Yeah. So you hit it with some yeah. olive oil, some salt, maybe some shallots and garlic in there. Put it on the sheet pan. Go in the oven about 400 degrees, a little bit higher. Yeah. And roast it really that's nice. That's where you get that caramelization. Okay. Nice, and, and, quick. and talk about yeah. that chemical reaction. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's what lost, right? There's a chemical reaction happening that is causing that to roast that changes the flavor profile that makes it a different dish completely. Right. You got to have salt, though. It won't uh-huh. happen if you don't put right. salt on it, period. You okay. know, If you hit it with acid, what it's going to do is going to break it down. It's going to take away from the color of it. So you hit it with some, um, some olive oil, some salt and pepper. The salt, use a kosher salt, right? Like a rock salt, a yeah. purified rock salt. What about don't, sea salt? Sea salt is great, but it's a little potent. So I would okay. finish with a, salt, a sea salt versus cooking with a sea salt. As opposed okay. to just the old little girl with the umbrella, ionized yeah. salt. Yeah. Okay. Stay away from that. Okay. Throw that in the trash. Good. Yeah. 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 We, got, no we got techniques yeah. coming out no, right and left. Throw that, throw that stuff away. You know, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, have that mindset of what do I use? You know, am I using the right ingredients? Am I using the right approach? Um, that information makes a big difference when you're cooking. Well, so one for me and, uh, you know, maybe for those of us out there. Oils. Okay, mm-hmm. so where, where where should you go? Where should you stay away from? Go with your, your like olive oils, um, your avocado oils, which yeah. is you know a good one, right? Um, and, and a good one has a higher acidic um, point to it. So you look yeah. at the bottom, the back of the bottle, and has an acidity you yeah. know percentage on there. Uh, that's a really good point, especially if it's in a dark bottle. Um, that's a really good olive oil to to yeah. use. Vegetable oils, stay away from those because. Vegetables don't create no oil. It's modified, right? (laughs) Um, Stay away from that stuff. Um, But if you want to do like a nice coconut, which is really nice. Um, I like peanut oil. I like peanut oil. Peanut oil's got a very... I do it for a lot of Asian foods. I use peanut oil. Peanut oil. I still have my old wok, so I still use wok from time to time. Oh, yeah. Sesame seed oils. I love those. Yeah, Yeah. that's a good point. I got a hand ham. But, hey, the difference between a cast iron pan and a wok, I mean, if you know how to use those things, they're dangerous, man. Knowing how to get... What do they call it? When you use the cornstarch and the chicken for Asian food, like the fire of the dragons, get a little coat on the outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, you watch them when they cook in a Chinese restaurant. They all cook the exact same way. You can't be home doing a walk, flipping food in the air like that. Right. Uh, yeah. But I bought it 30 years ago, and it's traveled with me or all through my hey, life. It's nice. great. So. Yeah. It's got all it's those awesome. flavors from all the flair, and it cleans easy, and it yeah. cooks wonderful. So, I think yeah. another one I really enjoy doing is going to the farmer's market and picking a cuisine in mind and then buying food for, like, two weeks. So a Mexican one or mm-hmm. a, a Mediterranean one. Mm-hmm. and Because, like, you know, sumac and those little spices, they cost nothing at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And I never go through a whole thing of sumac. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think that is also a fun way to experiment and try things and, you know, go back to it. You'll you'll right. learn. Um, well, Chef, this has been awesome. Give us some parting wisdom that you have for anyone in the restaurant industry or chefs or anybody like it. And, and let, let's let, let's end with that. Well, for anyone that's in the industry and anyone that's interested in getting to, into the industry, learn the fundamentals first and foremost. It's just like any professional that's at the peak of their game. They're fundamentally sound. Don't shy away from that. I know it sounds a little boring, but at the same time, it's what makes you a master of your craft. And also, be a global citizen, meaning that in order for you to master a certain type of cuisine, understand the stories and the principles behind those cuisines, and that'll help you become a master of your craft. I wish you all the best. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And with so many things, it's, it's always, yeah. Understand, build the foundations, and That's go right. from there. So, um, Chef Schuler, thank you so much. Can't wait to come uh, see you and uh, learned a lot. And uh, you've been listening to the Marketing Mad Men on Extra 106.3. We'll be back next week. 
In today's fast-paced world, your business deserves banking solutions that are as dynamic and cost-effective as you are. Solutions like free business checking from LGE Community Credit Union, free online and mobile banking, no minimum balance required, plus no maintenance fees and dividends on your balance. At LGE, we're a smarter way to bank. See what's possible for your business at lgeccu.org. No monthly maintenance fees. Other service fees such as NSF, overdraft, wire, and stop payment fees still apply. Not all businesses will qualify. Membership eligibility and base savings account that keeps $5 minimum balance required. So, Robert, I want to thank you for your time. I just don't think you're the right person for this position. I don't understand. Was it something I said? Well, we did a background check on you and found some things of concern. If you're in charge of hiring for your company, you know how helpful a background screening can be. That's why companies that use Horizon background screening make smarter hiring decisions. Don't let the wrong hire put your company at risk. Get the real story on your candidates at horizonscreening.com horizonscreening.com.